0: Well good morning, um, today's reading is from Romans, uh, Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 27 and then we'll be going into chapter 4 um, to the end, 25, and in your blue books that's on page 1,129, Romans chapter 3 verse 27. Where then is boasting? Is it excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trust God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. This blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. He had received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For it is those who depend on the law, sorry, for it is, for if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith, the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet... He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but for us as well, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification.
1: Well, as Mike's already said, today we come um, to the end of our series, the first major section on Romans uh, 1-4, where Paul is introduced and sets out the basics of the gospel of God, the good news about God's Son. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're hoping uh, not just hoping, we will um, in time to come go through um, some more sections of Romans and the whole letter um, over time. What's remarkable about these four chapters however, if you just uh, sweep and have a look at them, is what Paul devotes the most space to in discussing the Gospel. And I thought uh, the easiest way to illustrate this um, was via a sort of a pie graph. You can even see it. That's good. So after introduction of himself and uh, the basic theme of the gospel, that's in red. Does it come up as red? Sort of, yeah. Um, You'll see there. um, And a short, crucial explanation of the redemption that comes through Jesus on the cross. That's in yellow. You can barely see that. Paul devotes most of the entire space of chapters 1 to 4 on two themes. And I think they're really two sides of the one coin. First the wrath of God against human sin and the fact that no one can in the end uh, be good enough for God or truly seeks God. That's the orange, 50% on. And the fact that the good news of the gospel is received only uh, by faith in Jesus. That's the green. Now why do you think Paul has given so much of these four chapters over to these truths? Well, I think the reason is the same then, same now, as it was then. The reality, friends, of human pride in our own goodness. Virtually every week, I think, I either read or hear on the radio or television, some statement that most people are kind and good and therefore have some hope that they will either get to heaven or whatever they perceive the afterlife, let's say, to be. It's such a core belief. And in Paul's day, it was especially so among the Jews who were, after all, God's own people, chosen by them, by him, Paul needed to work overtime, you see, to convince his audience and still many today that nothing could be further from the truth and that core belief. Let chapter 3, verses 10 to 12 ring out again. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. The wonderful truth, however, in the face of such human sin and rebellion is that God found another way. Another way by which we could be made right with him and return to him again. That other way came through sending his son Jesus into the world to die On our behalf, taking the punishment we deserve and then rising to new life for all who by faith put their trust in his son. And Mike took us through that wonderful truth um, last week. The other side of this not good enough coin, if I can put it like that, however, is the acceptance that we can only become right with God by faith. Faith in the achievement of God's son on the cross. And not any human achievement at all. And I think we still tr- struggle in a way to accept that. I mean, surely that can't be true. Surely I must have to do something come to church, say my prayers, make sure I give enough money. How can it be that given my contempt for God as my creator? that all that can be overcome by putting my trust in Jesus and dedicating myself to him. And so today, having already covered Paul's extended argument explaining the reality of human sin, he now concludes with another extended explanation of this truth, which is the title of the talk today, The Gospel That Is Received By Faith. In 3.27-31, to 31, if you want to uh, turn to your Bibles back there, you've got the outline in your um, booklets, Paul begins this extended argument of faith by addressing the implications of receiving the Gospel by faith in what I call three headline questions. These are followed initially by some short, pithy answers, but then in chapter 4 he develops and illustrates those answers with reference to the life of Abraham. Why Abraham? Well he's the founding father of the nation of Israel and the beginning really of God's plan of salvation proper. He does this to make it plain that being right with God justified by faith is not something new. Hasn't come out of left field. Not a new invention. But the way it's always been and was clearly so with Abraham. His first question we find in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What does simply receiving the good news uh, from God do? to any human boasting. Well, faith excludes boasting. Now, it seems to me the propensity for human boasting is almost limitless. We boast about our achievements, our education, what school we went to, the knowledge we possess in one way or another that others don't, the money we've accumulated the possessions we own or things and stuff, as Luke said earlier, the people we know, who you know, isn't it? Or our beautiful partners that we parade around to others. We've got a federal election coming up. Get ready for lots of boasting, friends. In fact, it's already going on big time, isn't it, on the TV, etc. Lots of boasting about what um, each party Will achieve. What boast will you believe and vote for? I suppose the greatest political boast I can remember in my lifetime is that of Bob Hawke, who in the 1987 election campaign boasted no child will be in poverty by 1990. Well, today, something like 700,000 children are still live in poverty in Australia. Human boasting. But when it comes to having a relationship with God, with being right with him, God will have none of it. God has created a completely level playing field. Knowing God comes about simply by faith. Not faith in human achievement, but faith in the achievement of Jesus on the cross, the redemption that comes through his blood as we've just celebrated. Such faith excludes boasting, any form of boasting you can think of, because faith has nothing to do with works. Paul has already talked about uh, the boasting of the Jews earlier in chapter 2 regarding their possession of the law and their knowledge of God. Their boasting as a result of being, he says, guides to the blind, instructors of the foolish without realising that the law simply exposed their own sinfulness and guilt before a holy God. Faith as a means of coming into relationship with God destroys any form of reliance on human achievement of any kind. And this is the way it's always been, right back to Abraham. You see, Abraham was not counted righteous before God by anything he did. Abraham was counted righteous by faith and not by works. So in chapter four we see, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What's the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, now to the one who works, wages are credited as not as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Certainly, Abraham could not have been justified by works of the law since the law had not even been given much later until Moses came along. But neither was he declared right with any, with God by anything that he did then anyway. In Genesis 15, God tells us that tells Abraham that Sarah is going to bear a son when it was thought impossible to do. I mean, he was nearly 100 years old, but Sarah was also about 90 years old at this stage. But he believed God's promise. That trust, that faith in what God had promised was credited to him as righteousness Paul goes on in the next few verses in 4, 5 to 8 to talk also about David and David's statement in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, how blessed the person whose sin the Lord does not count against him. If you know the story of David's greatest sin, his adultery with Bathsheba and his conspiracy to kill her husband, Uriah, then you know his relationship with God had nothing to do with the works of the law or human achievement. The law simply exposed his sin. Rather, David knew deep in his heart the blessing of God, who accepted him by faith and not according to works. What do you boast in today? If you're here and still thinking about the Christian faith, what it's all about, I hope you're as clear as crystal about this one point, that to belong to God requires you to do nothing at all. Nothing at all except to believe what God has promised on your behalf in Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. And for all of the rest of us, brothers and sisters who are believers, I pray that our only boast to those who we meet day by day who do not know the Lord will be to boast of the wonderful grace of God that has come to us in his Son Jesus Christ. And the incredible differences that is make, that has made to your life now and to your hope for eternity. So that's the first thing. This level playing field of faith that God has created to know him excludes any form of human boasting. Akin to that, however, is the second. Faith also excludes any form of discrimination. Verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. The great conviction and boast of Israel, you see, was the truth that there was only one God. Monotheism, as we call it, was central to Israelite belief and, of course, is central to Christian belief. Deuteronomy 6.4 was foundational. here: O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But what they forgot was that the covenant privilege they had through the giving of the law and the covenant mark of circumcision was ne- never meant to exclude the Gentiles. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would come from all nations, not just Israel, but would come from all nations. If there is only one God who made the world and made all its peoples, then there can't be any distinction or discrimination when it comes to entering a relationship with God or fellowship with him on any basis. Race, nationality, sex, class, Age? None of those. Faith excludes discrimination because God is the God of all people. As one writer says, at the foot of Christ's cross and through faith in him we are all on exactly the same level. Indeed, sisters and brothers in Christ. In any church of God's people there can only be one level upon which people are welcomed into our fellowship. And that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you. Is there anyone here who you prefer not to talk to? Try to avoid for one reason or another. Because of colour or gender, disability, age. Then you deny to that person the very basis upon which God accepts you. Now that may sound uh, simple enough, but depending on culture and background, that's not always easy. When I was um, lecturing at the Bible College of South Australia, we had over a period of time a number of African students um, from different um, tribes who'd settled um, in Australia. The history of animosity and violence among some of these tribes, was acute. And it was not easy for these students to be in the same classroom, even though they all belonged to Christ, let alone regard each other as brothers and sisters in any meaningful way. It took hard work for them to do that and to overcome those barriers. And I have no doubt, if we are honest, that we too have harboured many divisions underneath that make it difficult for us to fellowship with other types if I can put it, of people who share faith in Christ. It's one of the reasons I'm really excited about this new venture of ambassadors that Michael Steeman's got going with refugees and others because actually we want our fellowship to cover all nations. No discrimination. Once again, Paul illustrates uh, the point with Abraham and the two classic distinctions that separated Jews and Gentiles, circumcision and the law. So in 4, 9 to 12, he shows that Abraham uh, was justified before he was circumcised. So he says, um, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but also follow in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So as mentioned earlier, Genesis 15 records Abraham's belief in God's promise of a son was credited to him as righteousness but circumcision was not given as a sign of the covenant until chapter 17, two chapters later. Hence faith, not circumcision was the basis of acceptance before God. The same is true uh, of the law. Verse 13 It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing. The promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law there is no Transgression, therefore he says, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and so it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who have of the law but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. It would be impossible. For God's promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, not just to the Jews, to be fulfilled if such a promise depended on the law. As Paul had already shown, the law brings wrath that exposes sin. No, Abraham received God's promise that he would be the father of all by faith, not law-keeping. So Abraham's offspring, says Paul, consist of all who have faith in Jesus without distinction of any kind. If you're a believer here today, you are a true child of Abraham and the fulfilment of God's promise to him all those years ago. God did this, you see, so his relationship by him would be purely by his grace and thereby be guaranteed to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. What, it is, what a marvellous thing it is that God has done for us, friends. So faith excludes boasting of any human achievement, excludes discrimination between people on any human cultural basis at all. The third question uh, Paul asks really arises out of his discussion of the law. If we are justified, that is declared right with God on the basis of faith, does that mean the law is completely redundant and nullified now? It was a conclusion many Jews thought was the implication of the gospel Paul was proclaiming. Not at all, says Paul. Quite paradoxically, it is just the opposite. Faith actually upholds the law. In three thirty one. And somewhere along the track I've lost the last few verses, but anyway. He says uh in three thirty one, is it uh somebody read it out for me, please? Do we then
0: nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather we uphold the law. Thank you.
1: Now, Paul doesn't develop uh what he means by this here, or in chapter four. Um, he just sort of He doesn't develop with Abraham either. So we've got to guess at what he really meant. There have been a few suggestions as to what Paul meant. But um, from what Paul writes in the rest of Romans, I think the best one is the one that faith upholds the law because faith is empowered to keep the law. In other words, when one comes to know God through faith in Jesus, God pours his Holy Spirit into their hearts and transforms the heart so that their desire is to obey God and what he has revealed in the scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course we're not talking about perfection here or anything like it. We're talking about who we serve. Who is our master? Paul's already noted in chapter 3 verse 20 that everyone without Christ is under the power of sin. They're enslaved to their own desires. But in Christ we are not only forgiven through the cross of Christ, but the power of sin has been broken. Chapter 6, verse 17, I think captures the thought. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that now has claimed your allegiance. You see, the law itself is good. It's given by God. Has to be good. But it's only power given the reality of fallen human nature is to expose sin and condemn the sinner to slavery. However, the one who by faith is made right by God has been released from their power and now serves God from the heart through the Holy Spirit. Paradoxically, Rather than make the law redundant or useless, faith upholds law. Well, Paul has now shown the implications of the gospel received by faith and illustrated through the life of Abraham. But he's not quite finished in what he wants to say about faith um, in in this longer expose. From verse 18 of chapter 4, Paul concludes his discussion on the character of faith And again, well illustrated from the life of Abraham. You see, in our world today, I think faith is not looked upon very highly, is it? It's often seen to be in opposition to science, for instance, and akin to something like wishful thinking that has no basis. Faith's a leap in the dark. No real evidence for it to back it up. Only yesterday... I was reading in the uh, Weekend Magazine of uh, the Advertiser about a married couple who turned $30 and handmade cards into a thriving stationery, gifts and homewares business worth a heap. It was continuing to go. The article had a quote from one of their bereavement cards that it said it had a, a big impact on many. This is what it said. Have faith... The one you love is now on their own special journey. Take courage and strength from those around you. Take comfort that the one you love is not only in your heart and in your memories but all around you. How lovely. What a nice thought. Have faith. In what? No wonder people often see Christian faith in the same vein. Just a crutch that helps to get us through the troubles of life. But that is not the faith Paul had in mind. The faith Paul is talking about does not rest in some sentimental, well-meaning, wishful thinking. Rather, faith believes and rests in the power and faithfulness of God. Again, Abraham is the perfect example in uh, verses 18 to 21 against all hope Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as had been said to him so shall your offspring be without weakening in his face he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened by his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Now you can imagine Abraham telling his friends, can't you, about this promise of God and what would happen today. You could hear the sniggers in the background. This guy's 100 years old. You've got to be kidding. Sarah's 90. Sorry, it ain't going to happen. I mean, some babies have had, some women have had babies in their 50s, but 90, come on, you've got to be an idiot to believe that. What made the difference for Abraham? Why wasn't he an idiot? It was the object in which his faith was placed, the God he had already encountered in the call to leave his home and travel a long way to Canaan. You see, Abraham was fully persuaded that God would deliver. In the end, friends, faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. You can put your trust and faith in all sorts of things and that faith will prove well-founded or entirely mistaken by the strength, evidence and character in the personal thing trusted. Abraham was convinced not only of God's power, that he could do what he promised, but also of God's faithfulness, that he had the will to complete and fulfil the things he had promised. So, Abraham, against all hope, the scripture says, believed in hope. He put his hope in something utterly foolish in human eyes. Because he knew God not only could deliver, but that he would deliver. And guess what? His faith was shown to be well placed and utterly reliable. Against hope, Sarah had a child, Isaac. And there began the line of people that resulted in the nation of Israel, the coming of Jesus, the offer of salvation and an eternal future. For the whole world, by the same faith, God indeed delivered. And because Abraham knew in whom he had put his faith, verse 21 says his faith in God's promise actually strengthened him and he gave glory to God. You know, sometimes the question is asked when tragedy or some hardship arises for Christians, whether, our faith, whether that calls our faith in God to question, into question. In fact, it should always be the opposite is actually true. It is the promise of God to us that through Jesus an eternal perfect future awaits that strengthens our faith and issues in giving God glory in such troubled times. And it's to this that I think Paul concludes his argument in verses 22 to 25. For the fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham was written down not only for him but also for us as a testimony to God who for us raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 22. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written down, were written not for him alone but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believed in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Last week we saw how Jesus' death on the cross, the shedding of his blood, took the deserved punishment for our sin and rebellion upon himself and opened the way to God to be just and yet able to justify the ungodly, you and me. But equally, the resurrection was crucial. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. But, says Paul, he was raised to life for our justification. The resurrection adds something to the finished work of death, of Jesus' death. Two things. It adds vindication for Jesus. He is who he said he is. His death accomplishes all that he said it would. And it adds justification for us. In other words, the resurrection confirms that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus will be declared right and end up with Him, resurrected to life in a new heavens and new earth for eternity. That is why the proclamation and celebration coming up next week of Easter is so important, so extraordinary. You see, it proclaims these first four chapters of Romans in a nutshell. It proclaims the gospel of God, the good news regarding his son. It proclaims in the face of a world and human race in opposition to God and deserving of nothing else but wrath and judgment, the extraordinary means by which God has justly punished human sin and rebellion and yet... Open the way for the same human beings to be forgiven, accepted and transformed to love and serve the one who created them. It proclaims that all that takes place without any burden at all on our part to perform. We receive this grand gift of God simply by faith, fully persuaded that God has can and will deliver everything he has promised. that one day Jesus will return and complete the process and take all believers with him into a perfect life for eternity. Now if you're still not sure today about Jesus, the opportunity is open for you to put your trust in him and discover his extraordinary love for you. And to us, friends, Christians, brothers and sisters, as the musos come up, let's uh, celebrate with all our heart that in Christ alone, God has made a way to forgive, justify, and transform those who once lived in ignorance and rebellion to him, to once more love and worship him. Amen.